Yeah, you guys on the left side, you guys got it right. You started sitting before everybody on this side. That was good. Well, first of all, my name is Russ Bennett, and I'm really, really thankful to be here this morning. Uh, I come before you this morning, and I feel unbelievably weak, uh, incapable of declaring God's Word to you. I'm thankful that I get to read it to you before I preach. That way you know something will be inspired this morning. Um, So I want to thank God first and foremost who has made this possible. Uh, I want to thank my wife uh, who has stood by me for 15 years now almost and she has seen me through uh, good times and bad times and my children who I love dearly and who have encouraged me and even before I came up here, Cohen says, good luck, Dad. I'm like, thanks, buddy. That's what I'm talking about. Um, it's a privilege to be with you. It really is. I, um, nearly eight years ago, planted a church myself. And it was incredibly hard. It was taxing. It was toilsome. And as I think about that, I think about this church, I think about Steve, your beloved pastor for 10 years, who many of you guys know was just an incredible shepherd who loved you, cared for you, put his needs, um, you know, put your needs before his own. And he poured out his life. And this, as we look around, is the fruit of of His labor, of His ministry in accordance with the sovereign hand of God. So I want to thank God for using Steve to plant a gospel-centered church here in the midst of what I would call probably a lot of easy believism. Uh, I want to thank Deemer and Jeff. These guys have not only shepherded you well, but they have shepherded me and my family. Kind of this go-between, if you will. And so guys, I'm so thankful for how you've led your church and how you've led our family. Just really good shepherding and love and care. So my family is very grateful. Grateful for this family at large. Thank you guys for coming out and meeting us and feeding us total strangers. And you... You just, you're just now getting to know us. The only other way you got to know us is through 23 really deep, hard questions that I had to respond to, and I think it was 23 pages I sent back to Deemer, and we're going to write a systematic theology book um, maybe one day after that. So today we're going to be in John chapter 15, beginning in verse 18. And we're going to conclude in chapter 16, verse 4. If you have the Scriptures, go ahead and open up to that. That way we'll be ready to dive in. Now, I had the freedom to choose whatever I wanted to. And uh, I went ahead and stayed with what you guys are already doing. Number one, not to interrupt the rhythm of this church, that you would continue to seek and savor and, and, and see this glory of, of God in John's gospel. But I want you guys to know, like, I am 
very, very committed to expositional preaching and teaching that I, along with the staff here, wants to expose the whole counsel of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, that we would see this beautiful, gorgeous, lovely, beautiful story of redemption in the history of mankind. And it also keeps me from just preaching on whatever I want to. Because let me be honest, the last thing I really wanted to do was come in and preach on the persecution of the church. It's just doesn't seem to be real applicable for us, does it? We don't, we don't tend to get a lot of persecution as maybe some of our brothers and sisters in the rest of the world do, right? And it just so turns out that this passage was very fitting. And the reason being is that on Thursday, Ramadan started, the Muslim holy month. This was when Uh, Muhammad supposedly received this revelation from God. And it's during this time that persecution tends to increase in the church all around the world. That Christians are being killed simply because they believe in Jesus Christ as their sole Savior. And they're being crucified for that. In fact, in Indonesia... Maybe you read about it. There's a couple who took their four kids and they attacked three different churches in a police station, killing 12, at least 12, and wounding others. That's the reality of our brothers and sisters all around the world. So as we come to John, there's a lot of different storylines that run through the book of John, many different threads. And one of those um, is this beautiful um, picture of, of Jesus being God. Even from the very beginning, John sets out to say, this Jesus, he was in the beginning with God. And he became flesh and he dwelt among us. And then if you continue to read through the, through the book of, of, uh, of John, you're going to see Jesus make these claims. He says, I am. And we see a connection to the Old Testament And make no mistake that Jesus is on every page of the Old Testament, prophesied from Genesis 3. And so here we have Jesus himself in John 6.35. He says, I'm the bread of life. I am whole. I am fulfilling. John 8.12, I am the light of the world in the midst of darkness. John 8.58, before Abraham was, I am. I am the eternal everlasting King of kings and Lord of lords. That is who I am. He's making these claims to deity. And then he says in John 10, 14, I am the good shepherd. I will watch over you. I will care for you. I will protect you. I will feed you. I will nourish you. And John eleven twenty five, I am the resurrection and the life. I bring people like Lazarus back up from the dead. And I one day will resurrect myself. I will lay my life down and I will take it back up again. That is who I am. And then he'll make this claim in John 14, 6 that nobody else has. He says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. So now we have the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. He's the only way. 
And you have to make up your mind, is he a liar, is he a fool, or is he indeed the Son of God, as C.S. Lewis would point out to us. And then we come to John 15, and we see this beautiful metaphor, this picture, where Jesus says, I am the true vine, and you are the branches. You abide in me, and you will bear fruit But my father is the vine dresser and there's going to be times to where he prunes you back and there is a beautiful reason so that more fruit can be born in you. And then we come to John chapter 15, verse 18. And we're going to go through 16.4. So if you would, would you stand with me in honor of reading God's word this morning? And verse 17, and Deemer talked about this last week, He's, John's writing this, and, and Jesus says, these things I command you so that you will what? Love one another. Love one another. Okay, it's a command, it's a reflection of who God is because God is love. But Jesus is also, I think, telling them, you're going to need this. You're going to need to stick together in unity as one body because things are about to get really rough for you. Verse 18, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. Verse 22, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Chapter 16, verse 1. Now I've said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills, whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. You may be seated. At this point, uh, I want to give you an insight into what is happening around the world. So we're going to show a short video, and then we're going to dive into the text, okay? Are we good to go back there, guys? Okay. The right to believe is a fundamental human right. Yet around the world, millions of Christians are denied this freedom. Worse, they are actively persecuted because of their faith. Every year, Open Doors publishes the World Watch List to wake up the world to the 50 countries where Christians face the most extreme persecution. And here are the top five countries on the list. 
the most dangerous places in the world to be a Christian. Number five, Pakistan. Christians in Pakistan are facing unprecedented levels of violence. At least 160 Christian buildings were attacked in 2017. Over 700 Christian women and girls were forcibly married. Convert to Christianity from Islam and you bring shame upon your family. Speak up for your faith and you run the risk of being imprisoned for blasphemy. For most Christians in Pakistan, life is lived on the margins, ostracized, denied education and restricted to the dirtiest, least regarded occupations. At number four, Sudan. The government wants Sudan to be a fully Islamic country. Converting from Islam to another religion is punishable by death. The government has arrested or intimidated many Christian leaders. At least 20 churches have been closed, and if you protest, as some brave pastors have done, you are likely to find yourself arrested on trumped-up charges. In the conflict-torn Nuba Mountains, Christians have been indiscriminately targeted by government security forces. Number 3. Somalia If you are even suspected of being a Christian in Somalia, you could be murdered on the spot. At least 23 suspected converts were killed last year. Christians are not only targeted by violent Islamic militants, but also by their own families and communities, ashamed by what they see as a betrayal of family and clan. So becoming a Christian in Somalia means choosing a life of intimidation, harassment and even death, which is why Somali Christians keep their faith as secret as possible. Afghanistan is number two on the World Watch list. All Afghan Christians are secret believers. If you are discovered to have left Islam, then you could be arrested or beaten up. Your house or business might be destroyed. You might even be killed. Some converts are even classed as insane and sent to psychiatric hospitals. At number one, for the 17th consecutive year, North Korea. The leaders are worshipped as gods, and Christians are considered enemies of the state. An estimated 50 to 70,000 Christians are imprisoned in brutal labour camps. So to follow Jesus here means risking everything. If you are fortunate enough to have a Bible, you must keep it hidden. You must hide your faith. Don't even tell your children in case they accidentally tell their teachers. And if you are discovered, then not only you, but your whole family will be sent to a labour camp. Around the world, persecution against Christians is becoming more extreme, but the church is growing. In the face of violence and cruelty, in situations of intolerable pressure and hostility, the persecuted church is not merely surviving, it is active and alive. This is our family, and they need our long-term support. For over 60 years, Open Doors has stood shoulder to shoulder with them. Our underground networks smuggle Bibles and literature, offer legal advice, train church leaders and other Christians, and provide vital practical support such as trauma care and emergency aid. In too many countries, Christians have to keep their faith secret. We don't. Will you share their struggle? Will you wake up the world to the reality of persecution? Because your prayers, your gifts, your voices are needed today more than ever before.
would you consider Christ in that culture? Because let's be honest, it's quite easy to become a Christian or be a Christian in America. We, we don't have to worry about somebody maybe coming in those doors and killing all of us because of the joy that we have in Christ. That's going on on the other side of the world. And we in America cannot turn a blind eye to that. And, and I think the churches today, pastors, we, we have to prepare you. I have to prepare myself for what I believe is coming. I believe that we will experience persecution. I don't know when it may be, when my kids are my I don't know. But it's already starting in our own backyard. Let me give you some illustrations. Colorado Mesa University. A graduation speaker was forbidden to talk about his God and to read his Bible in a speech. In California, there is a proposed law, a law on the books right now that would outlaw speech by ministers, licensed counselors, and authors on issues ranging from homosexuality to gender identity. So if you speak out, it is hate speech. And you can be locked up for that. And then the brilliant people at GQ say this, the Holy Bible is rated very highly by all the people who supposedly live by it, but who in actuality have not read it. Those who have read it know there are some good parts, but overall, it is certainly not the finest thing that man has ever produced. It is repetitive, self-contradictory, sententious, foolish, and even at times ill-intentioned. We, we live in almost like a post-postmodern world, a post-Christian world. And things are going to go from, from bad to worse. There's this growing sentiment of hatred and hostility towards those who believe, who have a faith, who have, at the very least, even religion. That how dare you believe in this? There's secularization and humanism which is leading to a degradation of our culture. I mean, look around. Read the newspaper. Watch the news. The world's messed up. It's not as it ought to be. And we live in the midst of it. So then, as opposition increases, as you feel more pressure from the culture and maybe from your government? How, how should you view these things? How should, how should we respond? Do, do we get on Facebook and start like blasting everybody who disagrees with us? 
How are, how are we handling it as, as Christ followers? And, and our response is usually one of two, right? We either kind of cower away from it, and we, we find a place to hide. We become monastic. We're kind of like these monks, and we don't want to have anything to do and, and not face it. Or we have the other side of the coin, kind of what I just mentioned, is that we, we respond in anger, don't we? How dare you do that to me? This is my faith. and my, How dare you? And Jesus is saying, you should expect to be hated. You should expect it. So we need to remember that as faithful witnesses of Jesus Christ, and that is what you are. You are called to be a witness of Jesus Christ. Okay, we're to expect hostility. Not that it should come upon us and we be surprised at the fiery trial, as was read a little bit earlier. We should expect hostility from the world while simultaneously knowing this, that God has sent us a helper, the Spirit of the living God, as we encounter this. So God is not leaving us alone. Now as we come to John chapter 15, things are getting a little dicey, aren't they? Jesus is about to go to the cross. The disciples are quite uneasy. What's happening? Jesus has been talking about this stuff. We're not exactly sure what's going to take place. But we promise whatever takes place, oh, Peter says, I'll be with you. I'll even die with you. And then Jesus says, not so fast, Pete. You're going to deny me. And you and the other disciples, you're going to flee. And I'm going to be left all alone, just my father and me. Until he turns his face away. And again, this is why Jesus has already said, guys, love one another. Love one another. So things at this point are going to go from bad to worse. Jesus is going to be handed over. He's going to go to the cross. He's going to die a cruel and wicked death because people hate him for what? Doing the right thing? And they're going to crucify him. It's going to get worse, but then it's going to get better. Okay, on the third day, Jesus comes alive. Consider this morning that you have a living God. He's not dead. We celebrate the resurrection. Without it, we have no hope. So the resurrection makes all the difference in the world. And if you come to faith in Christ, Jesus is saying, listen, you must deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. Be resurrected with me and do my will. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this, that when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Do you, do you see your life that way, that you are dead to your aspirations, your dreams, and you say, I am crucified with Christ, his will, not mine. So then, we're going to look at three different things as we roll through this passage, and I'll have to go quick. Okay, number one, 
I'm trying to figure this thing out. This is high tech for me. Which one do I push, Deemer? Oh, look at that. Okay. So we're making progress here. So the first thing that we need to see is that we must understand that to be hated and to be persecuted by the world is consistent with following Jesus. Like we must expect it. If the world hates you, if the world passionately dislikes you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Up to this point, the disciples have certainly not experienced as much hatred as Jesus himself has. They've kind of been watching this somewhat from a distance. Okay, But now Jesus is saying that you too are going to be hated if you're going to be a follower of me. When you identify with Jesus and his lifestyle, you're going against the grain. When you commit your life to following the one who threatens earthly kingdoms and earthly enterprises, persecution will follow. When you push back, students, when you go off to school and you push back against your anthropology teacher or your philosophy teacher because they don't believe in creation, you're asking for opposition as you stand upon the truth, as you stand upon the Word of God. This happened to Paul in Acts chapter 19. Okay, He's he's preaching the gospel. He's preaching against idolatry. He's preaching against Artemis. Okay, and he's preaching the gospel. Many come to faith in Christ, and guess what? The people who were selling trinkets, the people who were selling these little idols to Artemis, they're losing money. And they hate Paul for it. And then you have John the Baptist. John the Baptist, he calls out Herod. He says, Herod, you're, you're having an affair an affair with Herodias. And oh, by the way, that's, that's your brother Philip's wife. Not good, man. But why? why? Why is this so offensive? Well, number one is that the world by their very nature is anti-God, evil, and dark. Okay? When, when we talk about the world, what we're talking about is the unregenerate. Those who don't know Christ, who are still dead in their trespasses and their sins, and they follow the prince of the power of the air. They don't know Jesus. The world hates Jesus. They dwell in darkness. And John will tell us in 8, chapter 8, verses 43 and 47, that they have the devil as their father. We, we live next door to people. We work with people who have as their father the devil. I mean, think about that. Light and darkness dwelling together. And light and darkness have nothing to do with one another. Jesus says, why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. 
So the world by its very nature is dark and will push against light, but it cannot overcome the light. Light always pierces darkness. You just wake up in the morning, the sun comes up, darkness disappears, and it reminds us of the gospel. Creation is telling of the glory of God. Reason number two would be that they were bearing fruit. Jesus says, I am the true vine. If you abide in me, you will bear fruit. And what is that fruit? It's love, it's joy, it's peace, it's patience, it's kindness, it's, it's gentleness and self-control. And against these things, there, there is no law. Nobody's going to say, hey, quit doing this. And I think just about every other religion would espouse this. But here's the difference. Is that when people begin to see this in your life, they, they should ask why. Why are you so joyful? Why do you have so much love? Why are you so gentle? And then that gives you the opportunity to say, it's not because of who I am. It's not because of Muhammad. It's not because I've read a self-help book on how to be moral in seven good steps. We get to point people to the Savior. And we say, it's Christ in me who is bringing this about. Which leads me to ask, what would, what would people say about you? You're not in the room. You're a fly on the wall. Okay? What would people say about you? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control? Or would they say something different? Do you, in other words, do you give people a reason to ask you for the hope that you have? That's really the question. And, and, and if you don't, if you don't have these things, then I would just examine your life. Either maybe you're not a believer. Maybe you're here this morning and you're really, truly not a believer. That could be the case. Or maybe there's deep sin in your life that you love these things more than Jesus. So, this is, this is why, at least in part, that the world just says, because mm. if you look at the deeds of the flesh in Galatians chapter 5, it looks a lot like the world. And if I'm honest, it looks like me sometimes. And I have to constantly confess and repent and go to Jesus and be changed. And then the last thing, last reason would be because we're chosen. Because we're chosen. Verse 19, if you were of the world, in other words, if, if you had not been born again, if you were still of the world, the world would love you as its own. It would say, come with us. You're a part of us. Hang out with us. Let's do these evil deeds. But because you are not of the world... 
because you don't act like this, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. God has sovereignly chosen you out of the world. Out of all the people in the world, He's he's chosen you. Huh? Really? Me? Did you see what I did from the ages of between zero and conception and and when did I come to 20? Do you remember all that? And yet you you chose me. And now I'm different than the world because of you, although I'm still supposed to be in the world. That's why they're going to hate you, because I've changed you. I've changed you. You're a part of my kingdom. You're my child. And we're going to push and advance the gospel forward for God's glory. We see this in Nicodemus. I don't know whether Nicodemus ever came to faith in Christ, but he has a conversation with the rabbi. And Jesus says, you must be born again. You must be born again. No one in this room ever gave birth to themselves, physically and certainly not not spiritually. So Nicodemus hears, you must be born again. And John chapter 15, verses 16, cannot be any more clear. You did not choose me. I know that bothers some of you. Okay? But, But this, God's word is authoritative. It has the final say, not us. I chose you. You did not choose me. I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. If you're here this morning, you know that you're in Christ. You have been chosen. And just that very doctrine of election should make you the most joyful person in all the world. Because when you die, you're not going to hell. And you exist to worship and glorify and enjoy God forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And it never stops. So in verse 20, remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. And Jesus alluded to this when he's washing the disciples' feet. He said, listen, if I do this to you, I serve you. I humble myself and serve you. You go and do likewise. And now he's saying, listen, guys, the world has hated me. They're going to crucify me. And when you follow me, when the Holy Spirit comes into you and you follow me, the same thing is going to happen to you. It's going to happen to you and I. If they persecuted me, verse 20, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. So because, again, you follow Jesus, they are going to hate you. And back in John chapter 1, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world, the very world that he created, did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. 
verse 22, if I had not come, if I had not come, and if I had not spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. So Jesus has come into the world, and he's told them about himself. It's self-revelation of himself. He's revealing who God is, who man is, and they have not believed, and therefore they are guilty of their sin. Somewhat in the same way when Paul in Romans chapter 1, he says that God has made it clear to them in creation, yet they are without excuse. Because God's on display as you walk out these doors. He's on display in your body and how amazing the human body is. So if I had come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. So Jesus comes into the world. He speaks with authority. He says, this is who I am. I am the bread of life. And He heals people. He gives sight to the blind. He raises dead people. He turns water into wine. He feeds 5,000 with five loaves of bread, and I believe it's two fish. And so God has given us every reason to believe. Creation, in all of its glory, is meant for you to look past it. The heavens above are meant for you to look past it and say, there is a God who is unbelievably enormous. It's not an end in, of it, it's not an end in and of itself. It points to something greater. And then, and then Jesus does all of these works. So there is there's general revelation, which we see in Psalm 19. And, and there's special revelation with Christ coming into the world. And they have denied Him. I mean, what more can God do? But the, world, but the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. Everything you saw on that screen is not by accident. It's to fulfill the law. Okay? Persecution is part of God's plan. I don't understand it all. But the church continues to grow through it. And the church continues to to be the, the, the gospel continues to be sent out through the church in every land around the world, even in the midst of persecution. So this is the sovereign design of God. And if you read Scripture from beginning to end, you cannot get away from suffering. And Jesus himself is our suffering servant who has gone before us. We're to press in to Christ, to God our Father, and we are to, in a very real sense, push against the darkness, 
as we are believers. We are a, a kingdom. We are God's ambassadors. And we are part of His army going forth. But you're not doing this alone. You don't have to worry about doing it alone. Know that Jesus has sent you a helper. He sent you a helper as you serve as his witness in the face of hatred and persecution. Verse 26, but when the helper comes, that's the Spirit, I'm going to send him, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. So the Spirit of God is going to bear witness about the Son of God. And He's going to be sent from the Father who is God. And this Spirit is going to witness to what has just occurred. And when that Spirit comes, it's going to be poured out on who? The disciples. You and I. You and I. And the Spirit of God dwells within us. And the Spirit goes with us and says, you, you will be my witness. The Spirit testifies about Christ. The Spirit lives within us. So therefore, we testify about Christ. We witness about what we know and see and hear. So we've talked about persecution and opposition. That the Spirit of God dwells within us to help us. And so let me ask you a few questions. Do you experience any opposition? Do you? Do I? And if not, why not? And then let me take this a step further. Is there, is there any connection between our lack of witnessing and our lack of opposition? Because if you're not engaging in people with truth and you're not actually talking to them, they, they can't oppose you. I came to faith in Christ when I was 20 years old. Somebody took the opportunity, took, the, took a chance on me and shared the gospel. And I, I don't know if I just have like Christ follower written on my forehead or my chest. But for the last 20 years, you know how many people I've had share the gospel with me? One. One. Which means that we're really not taking opportunities to actually share what we say we believe. Or is there a lack of fruit in your life and you just, nobody's even asking you why you have the hope that you have? Maybe they don't see Christ in you and therefore. There's no opposition. You just look like the rest of the world. I don't know. But either way, not here to beat you up. Let us confess to the Father. And let us repent. And when we go into work tomorrow, let us be the happiest people on the face of the earth because we know the one who saves and let us look for opportunities in our workplace, in our schools, at athletic events, 
Let us get in the way of others that we could gain an opportunity to share the gospel. And then lastly, I want to encourage you to stay engaged. Stay engaged in this battle for truth. Chapter 16, verses 1 through 4, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. Okay. Jesus is, is blessing us and saying, here's what's coming. You want to know a part of the will of God? This is what's coming. And I'm saying all these things to you that you would not, you would not stumble, that you would expect it. They will put you out of the synagogues. They're going to kick you out of the Jewish synagogues because you're believing in the Messiah. They're, they're, going, to, they're going to kick you out of blank, blank, and blank. Because of what you believe. Indeed, the hour is coming. The hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. This is something Paul did. Paul was killing Christians thinking it was the will of God. And when we see terrorism all across the land, and we see Islamic terrorists, what are they shouting out? Allah Akbar. Okay, they're, they're, they, they believe that they're doing it in the name of God. And it's because their father is the devil and he is a father of lies and he is not the one with truth. And they will do these things because they have not known the father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. So in closing, here's what I want to say to you. I want to encourage you. There are people everywhere around you who buy into the culture, who look just like the darkness, and you are the light, and the light overcomes the darkness. We have to be faithful. You and I cannot save a single person, but we can witness to, to this Jesus who has saved us. So I want you to, I, I would beg you and, and pray for myself that, that we as a people, as a church, would stand firm on the truth and not budge on any single verse of Scripture. Because once you do, you begin going down a slippery slope, and then you become liberal, then your church is empty, and you have no impact in the culture. So let us stand firm. Stand firm on the Word of God and begin to see culture change because of us and Christ in us. Let's pray.